I'm delighted to be here tonight in the cozy confines of Artifact Coffee to continue our Origin Speaker series. I'm Spike Jurdy, the owner of Woodbury Kitchen here in Baltimore. This gathering is intended to advance the conversation about food, its origins, and what is happening around our food system in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. We started our first restaurant, Woodbury Kitchen, with a commitment to local sourcing and now work closely with more than 60 different farmers and producers throughout the region. We supply our four restaurants and our canning and butchery operations with meat, eggs, grains, fish and shellfish, cooking oil, cheeses and produce, literally everything we need to feed our guests. The hope is that this series will shine a light on the work that this community is doing in our area. The conversation is held monthly at Artifact, our coffee shop, in the heart of the Woodbury neighborhood in Baltimore. Hello, everybody. Can you hear me in the back? Hello, hello. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Good evening, and uh, welcome to Origins, and happy spring. Have a nice night for this. Um, I'm Dana Slater, the producer of Origins, and tonight we have a program that we've been wanting to do for a very long time, and we're really excited about our panel tonight, so I'm hopefully not going to waste a ton of time talking here so we can get right to it, but um, I thought it was important. I asked Holly today to uh, help frame the conversation a little bit, so what exactly is food insecurity? Because I think we hear that term a lot, and um, you know what is the actual definition of that? So um, this is from Holly's Holly's Freistadt over there, who I'll introduce in a minute. In a minute, is a Baltimore City's food policy director, um, but it's from their 2018 food environment report. So um, here goes. According to Feeding America, about 23% of Baltimoreans, including more than 30,000 children experience food insecurity. That is, they lack access at times to enough food for an active, healthy life for all household members and limited or uncertain availability of nutritionally adequate foods. The lack of access to healthy foods in the food environment is one factor that can contribute to a household's food insecurity. Households experiencing food insecurity are oftentimes burdened by other inequities, including poverty and poor health out outcomes. For example, Baltimore City has the highest poverty rate of any jurisdiction in Maryland. In addition, Baltimore City fares worse than the state average in overall health status and diet-related health outcomes that include diabetes, obesity, and high blood pressure. Happy story so far, right? <laughs> nice life, very nice setup. These outcomes also vary significantly by neighborhood, highlighting disparities across Baltimore City. Increasing access to healthy food is one way to ease the burden on families and might contribute to forging a healthier and more equitable food environment um, and reducing food insecurity. So with that kind of as the backdrop, um, we're thrilled to welcome um, such an esteemed panel to talk about some of the innovative and effective retail solutions um, both in Baltimore and DC. Um, so I don't have the DC statistics. Maybe Casey can uh, shed a little bit of light on that when we when we talk to Casey. So let me just start with some quick introductions. Um, I'll start with Casey. Casey tonight um, made the trek up here from DC. So thank you for doing that. That's never fun. Um, <laughs> Casey serves as the chief operating officer for Good Food Markets. Previously, she has worked in mental health, crisis prevention youth social services, agriculture, and education. She joined the Good Food Markets team in February 2015 
as a part-time produce clerk and now oversees all the day-to-day -day operations. The startup culture of Good Food Markets has developed Casey into a unique operator, blending social enterprise, traditional food retail, and restaurant models. You can often find Casey at the pilot location in DC's Ward 5. And we'll talk more about that when we get into what they're doing down in DC. So welcome, Casey, and thanks for coming. <laughs> um, next, uh, we welcome Holly Freistadt, who is actually an Origins alum, if there is such a thing. There is now. <laughs> Holly uh, is Baltimore City's uh, first food policy d director, and I think one of the first in the country, so I'm just going to say that <laughs> right here. Um, she began her work in the city of Baltimore in 2010. Holly created the Baltimore Food Policy Initiative, an intergovernmental collaboration that aims to address food system, uh, the, address the food system pol policy. Freistadt works citywide with government departments to align priorities and projects around improving the Baltimore City food environment. Recognizing that government can't address food access alone, I'm going to say Holly, <laughs> uses a multi-sector perspective and engages with many agencies, nonprofits, community groups, and stakeholders to dismantle policy barriers, facilitate new par partnerships, and leverage funding to implement innovative solutions to address food access issues in Baltimore. And I think uh, I'm pretty sure we have a bunch of TasteWise Kids uh, folks here tonight, and they're on that uh, food policy initiative. Is there anybody else here that's part of that? Uh, there's, a, there's a handful here. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Good. Oh, right. Thank you. Um, Holly spent over 20 years working on food issues in a variety of contexts, experiences that have provided her with an understanding of the food system from the perspective of a food policy strategist, nutritionist, educator, and grower. Um, Holly received the 2016 Medallion for Meritorious Service Award by former Mayor Stephanie Rawlings-Blake. Earlier in 2016, she was honored as one of the Maryland's Daily Records Top 100 Women in... Sorry. That's very long. I didn't know it was going to be read. Maryland. I just was like giving the background. <laughs> Anyway, there's a lot more. <laughs> yeah, we get the idea. Welcome, Holly. <laughs> um, our third pilot, uh, panelist, Reverend Dr. Heber Brown III, who is a community organizer, social entrepreneur, and senior pastor of Pleasant Hope Baptist Church in Govins. For nearly two decades, Dr. Brown has been a catalyst for personal transformation and social change. Toward that end, he is the founding director of, am I saying this right, Orita's Cross Freedom School. Yeah. Based on the Freedom School of the 1960s, Dr. Brown works to reconnect black youth to their African heritage, believing that holistic knowledge of one's own history is the prerequisite for healthy development and respecting others. I'm getting there. <laughs> Additionally, in 2015, he launched the Black Food Black Church Food Security Network, which combats food insecurity by helping historic African-American congregations establish or expand gardens on church-owned land. The network also links black churches and black farmers in the mid-Atlantic region to create a community-controlled alternative food system based on self-sufficiency and black food and land sovereignty. Uh, Dr. Brown's dedication to service has been widely recognized as well. 
He's, he's been awarded a lot of awards, a lot of awards, too numerous to sort of mention here. So welcome, welcome, thank, doc, you. thank you so welcome much. Welcome, Dr. Brown. Um, so, quick, quick thank yous and shout outs to our Origins team, um, Hannah Reagan, our uh, partner in crime over there, <laughs> um, and thanks to Grace Gillespie, who's in, out up in the back. She did all our flower arranging tonight. Um, to, to Donnie Carlo, who's actually his sister, Lauren, is doing the recording tonight. Um, and to Mary, where's Mary? Mary Romeo for doing our Facebook page. And cooking tonight is Lauren, Sandler, and Spike. Yeah, <laughs> believe it or not. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited about that. Um, so just for those of you that are new, and I don't think there's too many of you, but just so you know, we record the conversation. Um, and then edit it just a little bit, not a lot. <laughs> and then it's uh, uploaded as a podcast to Heritage uh, Radio in Brooklyn, New York. So you can find the past 28 versions of this um, on that. That's Heritage, heritageradionetwork.org. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Spike. Thank you, Dana. This is amazing. We have such an incredible group here to talk about something that we spent kind of, I feel like, the last 28 episodes of Origins kind of circling around because we've talked about our food system, the farmers and the makers, uh, and all the folks that make it what it is uh, from virtually every angle. But now we have to talk about the people who, who need this food, I think, the most. And there's a, there's a disconnect here, I think. When I think about it, uh, myself working as a chef in Baltimore, I kind of boil it down to my job is to feed the people in the city. And it turns out there are a lot of folks in the city that aren't eating well, that face food insecurity, and I feel like on some level I'm not doing my job if that's, that's the case. And we have some folks here tonight that can really talk about this, I think, in a, in a meaningful way. So I would like to kind of start with Holly and just, you know, part of the thing is we need to talk about what the problem is before we can talk about, you know, some of, some of the work that's being done to solve the problem. And I'd love to hear from each of you what you think we talk about food insecurity and maybe expand that conversation to include um, notions of, of food access and food sovereignty maybe. Um, I'm, you know, I, I wish that I had a, a more, I think, nuanced or a deeper understanding of what's really happening in a city like Baltimore that I, it's where I live and it's, it's where, you know, it's where my heart is. But um, let's, let's start there and then maybe then expand the conversation into what we could and should and need to be doing about it. Great. Thanks, Spike. So I want to start with, we just heard the definition of food insecurity. But that, what that really means in the survey is, did you miss a meal or did you go hungry today or this week? Right? But it doesn't talk about the root causes. It just says, did you miss a meal? Right? And so if that was really the main issue, then we could feed our way out of the problem. But it's not really about just feeding people because we can't feed our way out of this issue. It's the inequities, right? It's the income, it's the education, it's the housing. And so when we start to look at all those around food insecurity, for Baltimore City, we started to do food environment mapping. Um, and we really wanted to look at different ways to use our data to tell a story. And so we work with Hopkins and we come up with a healthy food priority area. And that name has been changed. It used to be called Food Deserts. And with lots of resident input, we changed the name. Um, so that residents can really frame the issue however it needs to be framed. 
And so the city can really prioritize how we get this work done. How do we reinvest in these neighborhoods? How do we look at these root causes? So when we look at healthy food priority areas, we're using four key factors because just not having food is not enough, right? So we gotta look at income level. We have to look at the fact that only 30% 30, 30 of Baltimore City residents don't own or have access to a vehicle. Um, we use a quarter mile radius to supermarkets, not saying that there should be a supermarket every quarter mile, but it's an indicator of a barrier to access. And then the coolest part, that I think, biased, um, is that we worked with Hopkins and they went to every single food retail store in the city and gave it a healthy food availability score from zero to 28.5, right? And so when you combine all those together, it's saying, it, it's saying what is that quality of that food environment? And so when we combine that together, it says around 23% of Baltimore City residents um, are living in healthy food priority areas. Uh, kids and seniors are impacted the most. Um, but also, one of the things that we started doing in our 2018 report is really starting to bring race into the data. Um, and not just say disproportionate, but really start to call out race. So of all the um, black residents in Baltimore City, 31% live in healthy food priority areas. Of all the whites in the city, less than nine, right? So this is a race equity issue. It's way more than feeding our way out of this issue. With that, I'm going to punt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of set you up, right? Uh, yeah, I think you kind of did. Yeah, all right, I was trying. As a handoff, as a handoff. Um, yeah, so I, I appreciate that, and it, um, it it is a good handoff because when I think about those statistics, and I'm really curious about how y'all got to 28.5, I think that's a... Uh, that's uh, that's, that's a really score. Yeah, yes. yeah, but why not just 30? I don't know. Okay, I, I don't know. I don't okay. work at Hopkins. Okay, but... Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but yeah, but so one of the things that um, I saw when I started looking at the maps, and it was, was bubbling up in me anyway, was what was missing from the map. What's missing? What, what, it, what stories are not being told and what factors are not being accounted for? Um, one of my Muslim brothers often says, if your premise is wrong, your conclusion will be wrong. And as a pastor, what I knew was that these maps were not taking into account what these black communities have as their assets, right? And so if you start the conversation with deficiency, it takes you down a path where the conclusion is we must provide and create an intervention to address that deficiency. But what if we started in a different place? Mm -hmm. What if we started with what are the assets of these communities? Where are the sales already erected? And where could we put some wind behind the established sales of those communities so that those communities take the lead in crafting and defining their own solution? And then everybody else gets behind and pushes in the direction of what those most directly affected determine as the problem and the solution that they desire. And so for me, one of the assets that um, is oftentimes overlooked is the, uh, the anchor institutions of historically African-American churches. If you look at it, and for some of you, um, you are familiar with the work of Dr. Lawrence Brown, and he talks about the white L and the black butterfly. He looks at the city of Baltimore, and the spine of the white L is York Road, and it empties out down near the Inner Harbor. 
And that's where there's a concentration of investment, that's where uh, partnerships, that's where higher quality of life, longer life expectancy. You can find it in the white L, right down the middle of the city of Baltimore, emptying out to the inner harbor. The black butterfly is on either side of that spine. And these are the majority black parts of the city where you have divestment, where you have historic divestment, gentrification go down the line, right? Really, and this is, it has become impolite conversation to say it, but I think we're, we're brave enough to say it tonight, that really it's the red line, it's the ripple of redlining that still lives with us today. And we don't say that word, but the effects of it still are part of the city of Baltimore. What I know is that in the wings of that black butterfly, you have thousands of black churches in those neighborhoods. And for those, in fact, and I'm, for those who are listening online, you can raise your hands too, but if you've ever been to a black church experience, a worship experience, or a meeting, what have you, this, can I see your hands? Been to a black church before? Okay, if you haven't, don't die tonight. Try one out before you die. Uh, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a one, it's spiritual Zumba, you'll love it. Uh, but what you'll find is that these anchor institutions have often been around for 70, 80, 90, 100 years. And the reality is that when the pastors die, that church will continue moving forward. That community stewards land, kitchens, classrooms, and is a place where the, pe the very people who are the target of the reports is a place where that, the, that community has agency, autonomy, dignity. And it has a long track record. The first, for those who don't know, and I'll close my sermon on this, and I'll, I'll find a nice handoff to Spike. But for those that do not know, the first historic African-American congregations in this country were established in the late 1700s, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and also with independent black churches as well. From that time, late 1700s to this, a whole lot of stuff has happened in this country. Yeah. But that institution has been able to be resilient and bounce back no matter what has happened from the four little girls being bombed in 16th Street Baptist Church to pastors like my classmate Clementa Pinckney being killed in his church in South Carolina. Go on down the arson, crosses, whatever, De Great Depression, uh, world wars. This institution has shown uh, in nonprofit language to be the most sustainable institution in black America. It makes sense then that if we want to really put some strength behind an enduring, sustainable, uh, agency-filled, dignified way to address food insecurity, for me, and I'm biased, I'm a pastor, but you gotta come to church. You gotta come to church and not just see it as the spiritual center, but see it for the, the, um, the powerful base of cultural, spiritual, economic, and political strength that it is. Last thing I promise, and preachers said it a lot. But we individualize people like Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. We individualize him. He was an individual hero who came down from the clouds and you know did wonderful work and then was taken from us, was assassinated. I think we make a mistake when you individualize him. King, like many other freedom fighters from the black freedom struggle and civil rights, social justice, human rights movement, was a product of a community. There was a whole congregation that shaped him to be who he was. And I just want to report tonight that the same institution that shaped King, one of our favorites, is still around today, shaping freedom fighters and human rights activists 
all, all, uh, all around us and all over this country. And so for me, again, that's my sermon, but it's important that we see the anchor institutions like churches, but also just what are the other assets in these communities, and it can really steer the conversation in a different direction. So I, I want to return to that when we, when we can, and because you have specific work around mm -hmm. food mm -hmm. that we'll talk about, but I also sure. want to yeah. bring Casey to the conversation. <laughs> and your work is happening in D.C. We'd yes. love for you to, to maybe direct your gaze here to Baltimore. Let's, and I think at, at the very least, this will help us understand that this isn't just a Baltimore problem, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, but tell us a little bit about what you have, what you're working on in Definitely. DC. So Good Food Markets opened in 2015 in the Ward 5 area of DC. Um, and we're gonna be opening a second store in Ward 8 um, sometime this year, early next year. Um, and what's interesting about, you know, when Reverend Dr. Brown talks about that the premise, if the premise is wrong, then the conclusion is wrong. I think that we've certainly learned a lot in our four years of operation at Good Food Markets. I think that, you know, initially that conversation was very much so around food deserts and what is a food desert. I think that we all saw that heat map, right? In D.C. it's very similar. You have um, a lot of the areas of Northwest um, that have... Uh, better health statistics, um, higher income, higher educational levels, um, and there that is the concentration of grocery stores within the city. I wish, Dana, that I had brought more statistics, and if <laughs> Philip had been here, he would have all the numbers to rattle off. Um, but the, uh, the disparities that exist within D.C., you know, Ward 5, Ward 7, Ward 8, these are the areas that traditionally have experienced food apartheid, and that is really the term that we use within the community um, who, are, who are trying to come combat this because institutionally like the redlining that has happened in all metropolitan areas within this country um, have disproportionately disadvantaged people of color uh, versus uh, white people in in urban areas um, and so you know good food markets is taking a food systems approach to equitable development uh, and that can be a very big challenge because a lot of the times people see um, a business like Good Food Markets, which is a grocery store. If you visit our Ward 5 location, um, the only open store that we have right now, we're 1,000 square feet of retail space. The entire building is 2,000 square feet. And there are other small retailers in the city who operate in a similar size, and they're much more of a boutique store. There might even be co-ops of that size. Um, whereas we are a full-scale grocery store that is operating within 1,000 square feet. And so, you know, sometimes there's a misnomer that uh, you have a new business that's moving into an area like this, and it really is the tip of the iceberg for gentrification. People see it as a threat. The legacy community that has been there views it as the beginning of the change of their neighborhood. And we've tried to really be able to take... Uh, take the perspectives of the people that we're working with. You know, we hire primarily from within the neighborhood that immediately surrounds the store. Um, and I think that a lot of our perspectives have changed in doing this work. Um, because as you find when you open a store like this in, a, um, in an industry that traditionally has extremely low margins, and this is why a lot of grocery stores don't open in these areas, grocery that operates on a 3%, 2% profit margin for something like a Giant or a Safeway, Whole Foods might make more, right? But you're already not making very much money. Um, and to open in areas like this, it's, it's obviously a lot more difficult when there's not a lot of wealth within the community. Um, but being able to take the perspectives of the people within the neighborhood and make something that's really culturally relevant, um, you know, that it, it can be an, an interesting conversation. But um, we have found that in opening the new Ward 8 store, we're really taking our time there. Um, but the food desert problem is not 
just about opening grocery stores in these areas. Uh, it's really about these issues, like Holly mentioned. You know, you're talking about education, you're talking about housing, mental health, healthcare, all of that. Um, and these things are are uh, a result of institutionalized racism. And it takes it takes a full system approach to really address these issues. So. But a big part of it, it just keeping it on the food is not enough access to good food. Correct. What you're trying to do is is counter that. So if sure. I walk into yeah. the store, yeah. what's in the store? What's, yeah, so what's... we've got, I mean, so we don't source a lot of local produce during the off-season, but as much as possible, the D.C. Um, growers really do pro- provide as much as possible, and so we buy from local growers within the city as much as possible. We work Just with tell us what's like, on the shelves. Yeah, the we've, shelf got, we've got produce, we've got dairy, we've got meat, uh, we do serve uh, alcohol and wine. Uh, we have, uh, <laughs> what's interesting about when we talk about being an affordable grocery store is that some of our, our um, grocery shelf-stable items aren't necessarily the same prices that you would find in a giant, right? I don't have the same buying power that somebody like Safeway does. Um, So people come into our store and they say, oh, you said that this is affordable food and I could buy it cheaper on Amazon, right? Our produce, however, we take a much lower margin on that. So uh, a commitment that we made from the very beginning is that we offer our produce at a lower price than giant would any day given. Um, On top of that, for a food insecure household, um, that is a self-identifying customer category that you can opt into at the register when you sign up for our reward program. Um, All participants in that get 25% off produce all day, every day. So that would help subsidize people who are used to receiving um, the Produce Plus vouchers in D.C. Um, And then if you're a senior household, because Ward 5 is the highest senior population in D.C., you'll get 10% off produce all day, every day. Um, So our produce that we have isn't necessarily organic or local, um, but it is affordable. Um, And we piece for piece sell more produce in the store than any other item. Um, As a percentage of sales, that's not necessarily the same, um, but... You know, piece for piece, we found that people do show up and buy that stuff. Within our block, we have a family dollar where people are buying some of the shelf-stable items, where they're buying some of the um, pantry and and uh, health and beauty aid items. Uh, but yeah. Is cost, is this, I mean, cost is something that comes up, it, it seems yeah. like, at, at every corner. Do you think that the cost is one of the big barriers that we're dealing with here, or is that? So I think it, the question needs to be reframed. It's that it's the income that people make yeah. is the issue, right? Because yeah. the cost, if we keep bringing down the cost lower and lower and lower, the farmers won't get paid, right? Mm-hmm. And so it has to be a nice balance where you're not getting you know, 15, 30% margins on your produce, but that I think it has to be around the ability for a community to earn the incomes that they need to be able to afford the food. Um, so I want to kind of look at, I know this conversation is about retail, um, but I want the retail environment is changing here, right? And there's multiple ways you can look at retail, right? Retail is the grocery store that's open, right? But retail is also um, SNAP benefits is food stamps, just to give you a premise here, is th- that online SNAP benefits is coming to Baltimore and is a pilot around the country. There's 10 locations around the country. Baltimore is one of them. And so this started um, with the health department doing a small pilot, and it's grown since then, working with a shop right to have the ShopRite people order online but could not pay. The ShopRite then delivered to the low-income housing, senior housing um, location. And at the time of pickup, they swiped the food stamps and the food was given. That's because of how it was written in the Farm Bill, right? the big policy on food. And so we were able over years in Baltimore to help influence the Farm Bill, got a change in the Farm Bill with a million other people, 
And then we were able to become an online um, SNAP pilot city around the country. So the way that we're going to be looking at retail is changing. And obviously it's a catch-22 because online SNAP is going, if it, there's a many, many questions and the pilot will start probably next year. Um, there's more questions than answers still. Um, but that when that rolls out, it also will have an impact on the brick and mortars, right? Um, and so that's one piece. But then my last comment on this piece is we can't forget SNAP is an economic driver, all right? People assume if you don't have, if you are low income, you don't have money to spend. Well, we have SNAP. And so what's happened with the federal shutdown, you know, a few months ago, we saw huge, not only spikes of insecurity, but huge issues with our retailers. The retailers are really worried about their profits, their ability to keep their staff. And so there is this connection between economic development and retailers and low income population and finding that balance between the two. Now I can punt again. Mm -hmm. And off. Um, <laughs> I think one of the things that we talk about cost that um, that I um, have tried to to work at. We're still tinkering with it. And I'm still learning. Even in this con of course this conversation, I'm taking mental notes of what y'all are saying. Um, but the ways in which that, in ways in which rather that churches can and faith-based organizations and just just as an aside. There's an entire faith lands movement in the country right now where denominations of all stripes um, are rec and faith-based organizations as well are recognizing that they have a, they have a role to play in, in right-sizing and, and uh, improving our current food system even as there's creative thinking around um, ways to meet some of the food security issues in the local communities. But I always think about what are some ways that our faith-based organizations can absorb some of the cost of doing business so that, so that, and I'm glad you brought up farmers, so that the farmers, as Denzel's looking right in my face, <laughs> uh, no, no, but so that, so that farmers, uh, particularly small farmers, are, are supported. I mean, if they, and I like how you reframed it and, and shifted, because if it's just about driving the cost down, right, somebody's gonna hurt, and it's the farmers that's gonna hurt uh, as, and I've had the blessed opportunity over the past, what, three years or so to travel the country talking to farmers and getting a real education. Um, when our church started growing on our front yard about eight years ago, I'm at Pleasant Hope Baptist Church in North Baltimore near York and Belvedere, just west of Belvedere Square. And we started growing on our land because, you know, I wanted to positively impact the health of our congregants. And... Um, and instead of trying to find tech, like a charitable kind of connection uh, and partnership, I said, well, we have a little piece of land right here. We have 1,500 square feet. Let's grow on it. Let's just grow what we need. Thankfully, um, in my congregation, a number of people grew up on farms in South Carolina and North Carolina and Georgia. So all those African-Americans that came north through the great migration of the 20th century, Baltimore is one of the first stops. So when this young past young-ish pastor stood up stood up excited about the food justice and we're going to do this born and raised here in baltimore i didn't know the beginnings of how to do this it was the seniors of our church that stood up and said pastor brown you don't know what you're doing i said you're right <laughs> they said let me help you and, and they and so our church started growing in our front yard and that was it was and is still very successful our garden is called maxine's garden named after one of the noun uh, patron saints of our garden. She just passed away last year at 83 years old. But um, we, we learned so much in our eight years. As a part of my eight-year journey, I was going around learning from people like Denzel Mitchell 
and Aaliyah Frazier and the Black Dirt Collective and other farmers and got an education on like what it really takes to get their produce and their meats from the farm mm -hmm. to a shelf. Mm -hmm. And it was eye-opening, and still is, and I have so much more to learn, but as I listen to them, I say, hmm, how can faith-based organizations take care of that? Like, I want to get to the day, can I dream a little bit, y'all mind? <laughs> I want to get to the day where farmers are on payroll at churches. Cool. Mm -hmm. And they don't have to worry about like they can at least now I've learned my role in all of this is not to be a farmer and Lord knows I'm not a chef uh, but I had to find where's my lane in all of this where's my unique realm of influence where I can steer support and push uh, push support in the direction of those who need it and it was in the direction of sitting with trustees and doing church budgets and saying we need to make this a line item in our budget we need to pay for uh, cold storage for this farm in West Baltimore. We got we got to uh, pay for a, a, or put money up for a reefer van or support the maintenance of a reefer van for the local farm. Like thinking along those terms, that's what I do. I talk to bishops, pastors, rabbis, imams, and say, "Listen, we can do something more than just come together and sing and praise and worship whatever God you want. Fine, mm -hmm. go ahead. But what else can we do? Mm -hmm. And so the cost issue, supporting farmers issue, are things that I think that our faith-based organizations can really help with. And I'll stop there, but there's more in terms of where that story goes, <laughs> but the retail piece is a way that I think um, our anchor institutions can help as well. And it's funny how the, the conversation gets right to, to these practical aspects of like, yeah. I get that, yeah, you gotta have that van, <laughs> and then you gotta have the guy that can, or the person that can fix the van, and uh, mm -hmm. that's, that's very much the reality. The other part of a reality here is that a lot of the, the existing, and I think you, you can each kind of weigh in on this, the existing retail that, is, is kind of the status quo for a city like Baltimore, and I think it's probably the case in D.C. as well, is the, is the corner store, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the thing that... And we should talk about, you know, and I, and I think um, it's, it's, it's part of the infrastructure, right? And it's probably something we should be working with as, uh, instead of against it at this point, right? So you set me up beautifully, yeah, and you yeah. didn't even know you were doing <laughs> no, it, so thank you. All right, so this brings me to, um, so in the 2018 report that I was talking about, we have over close to 800 corner stores, and they have very low healthy food availability scores. Um, and so what we did is wanting to address this issue, we created something called the Resident Food Equity Advisors. Kelly's actually sitting here, who is one of them working on this cohort, specifically on how to address corner and convenience stores in our city. Um, but with the resident equity advisors, we didn't want volunteers because it's not equitable. Mm -hmm. um, so we did an application process, actually 100 applicants for 16 slots, each representing um, one of the 14 council districts, double dipping in priority areas intentionally. Um, and then every equity advisor gets a stipend and a really good meal. Um, and everyone contributes around 35 hours of their time in around a given year of seven meetings. So we really start to dive deeply into the issues. It's not a one-time meeting, tell me what you think, and we walk away and try to do something. And so what we're really looking at here is sort of what I call collaborative governance. So my team, we do food all day long, every day. We love it. We're wonky. We like policy. We read it all the time. And so it gives us an opportunity to kind of share what we've learned around corner community stores, best models, policies, practices from around the country. We share it with the advisors. The advisors digest that information, combine it with a lived experience, and give us recommendations and thoughts that we could never come up with ourselves. And so with that, um, we have our new resident equity advisors' recommendations that have just come out on sort of the key components to how to address corner stores. And so when we look at corner stores, and 
There's a few things. We also had um, a woman, Soyun Park, go and interview corner stores. And what we have to understand about corner stores, for the most part, there are limited resource immigrants who own these stores. Mm -hmm. So we have both sides here, limited resource residents who are shopping at these stores, and mostly immigrants, limited resource, or at least initially, but really most of them still are, um, shop owners who are coming here because they too have been discriminated in their life and they can't go to other neighborhoods. Um, so that when we really start to look at this picture in a more deep, significant way, it's about sort of structural racism. Why, you know, different groups and different businesses are there. Um, and then we, it's also, we can't just put fruits and vegetables in a corner store and say the problem is done, right? Mm -hmm. We gotta look at the environment of the corner store. Can people walk to the store safely? Can they stand outside the store safely? Can they go in the store safely? You know, um, what's the layout? Do people feel safe in the store? So it's so many more factors. So these recommendations really go about food. And, and you can also jump in here too. It's food and safety and economic viability. And then also understanding that we have many races in our city. It's not just black and white anymore, especially when it comes to corner store owners. Mm -hmm. So what is that cultural relationship between corner store owners and the residents themselves? And that was really a summary of the resident equity advisors recommendations. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that you guys are doing that work with the corner stores because you talk about like how you can't just put produce into a corner store and call that uh, a substitution, right? We've had, um, we actually were one of the um, customers for DC Central Kitchen's Healthy Corners model uh, where they were going around two bodegas and providing them with a small amount of produce that they could put in a DC Central Kitchen contained case. Uh, you could buy 10 limes, five lemons, whatever it was, right? Um, and they have had a, a very, a very good success in DC doing that. Um, but we find in our neighborhood, say, a few months ago, we had another um, store open up on our block, Seven Days Market. Um, and it's an Ethiopian family who, um, you know, one of their first jobs when they were in this country was working in a corner store. Um, and they felt that they were ready to open their own store. And so took this, um, took this big commitment on in our, in our area. And, you know, similar to almost our experience is that being a retailer, is extremely difficult, right? I mean, just the, the sourcing that they do, you know, I purchase from over 50 vendors um, at any given time. In one week, it's something like 32, right? Um, but then for somebody who is operating a bodega, they're going to cash and carry, you know, and they're going a few days a week. Uh, and it's hard to keep up when it's just you and your family that's operating that store. And so I think that there is a lot that we have learned um, in operating retail stores where there's a lot of nuance. You know, Giant's able to get the prices that they are because they have contract buying, right? They work directly with uh, the producer of this food. And we would like to be able to do that with local makers, right? Uh, bring it back uh, to, to the people in our area. And so it can be a hard balance, but it's very difficult for individual retailers to do that on our own. And so I think that there's a lot of potential for the policy to swing to support these smaller, uh, these smaller businesses. And we've had some support from DC with DSLBD, with uh, the Great Streets program um, to support us in that effort. But it would be you know, really welcome to have that influence on, on some of the more uh, family-owned businesses. Spike, can I ask a question? I don't, I don't want to take the interviewer's seat, but you, you piqued my curiosity <laughs> sure, about yeah. what are some of the barriers that you know that you experience from doing like contract buying for Absolutely. Yeah, what are, what yeah. do they look like? So in my in my store where I have a thousand square feet of retail space, right, to, to buy from certain vendors. So Giant every week works with two 
distributors, right? They've got a warehouse somewhere in Maryland and all of their stuff comes to that one warehouse and then gets onto a giant branded truck and goes to the giant store. Mm -hmm. So every week they're receiving exactly what they need. They know what the order is. They're not placing any order outside of the giant system, whereas I'm buying directly from these distributors. So for me to be able to buy from, you know, 50 plus vendors, I'm doing that on my own. But in order for um, somebody else to be able to, like let's say for Seven Days Market, who's a block away from me, in order for them to buy from somebody like UNFI, you'd have to have a minimum order of $750 a week. Now, if you don't have the backstock for that, if you don't have the cash available, similar to farmers, right, being able to sell for certain quantities, if you don't have that cash flow to support that, you're never going to make that minimum order. And it's not like they're going to send you a truck once a month. They want to send you a truck every week. So you don't have buying power to begin with, and you can't work with any of these distributors. Somebody like Super Value, so I don't even work directly with Super Value. I work with a third party, B Green, who's a Baltimore company. Yeah. yeah. So they get us our Super Value products, but I don't work directly with Super Value because even I'm too small to work with them. So Bodega really doesn't stand a chance. Whereas Super Value is selling to B Green, who's selling to Cash and Carry in DC. And that's where the Bodega shoppers, that's where the Bodega owners are buying their product from. So there are a lot of steps in this process, and we could, through group buying, maybe start to break those barriers down. Can I answer this as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, please. please. I got to take notes. Come on. All right. So there's a couple other things I want to note on the corner stores. By no means am I an expert, but I do like to learn a lot. Um, First of all, when you go to the corner stores, all the sodas and chips, guess what? They come on a truck. And they go to every single solitary corner store in the city. The, the no corner store needs to go buy that. It comes to them and they stock it and they rotate it and they make it super easy. So any of the junk foods, it comes to them. Mm-hmm. So that they have to then go to Bee Greens or other places for their produce and for any other perishable healthy foods because there is no way to really stock that. So that's one point. Two is when you look at corner stores, we have around 100 corner stores in our city out of 800 that are for WIC, women, infant, children, meaning it's a nutrition program. SNAP is not nutrition, it's supplemental. Mm-hmm. WIC is a nutrition program, all right? So we have 100 stores who must carry very specific foods mm-hmm. in order to be able to keep its WIC. And so you can go in as a pregnant mom or a mom with kids under the age of five and you can shop at these stores. Um, but they have to make sure they have a certain amount and it has to be in at all times and you can't run like, out. No. Minimum stocking oh, sorry, It's for WIC, so it's going to be um, dairy, produce, You have to have um, something protein. like 124 um, pieces And it's a very specific list and you have to have a certain amounts and, um, and it has changed and improved upon. But the point is there is this retailers who want to have WIC and who want to have SNCC Snick, uh, snap. Um, <laughs> I'll talk about Snick in a minute, ladies and gentlemen. Just one second. <laughs> also has their own burden. They also have their own burden of what they have to do yep. in order to keep it. And one example I just want to put out there is that you can use Snap benefits for anything, right? And so I have seen this too many times. It drives me crazy. We've actually put businesses accidentally out of business because people use too many salad bars. Right? Because mm-hmm. salad was not considered one of the staple foods, right? And so at one of the public markets, we were trying to get people to eat healthier and they lost their SNAP benefits. And so retailers, so you can go into these stores, these corner stores, and get sandwiches. As many sandwiches as you want as long as they're cold, okay? But if you get too many sandwiches out of that corner store, you're going to make them lose SNAP and you won't even know it. Um, and mm-hmm. so we have to make sure we understand that the store owners 
have so many different layers of requirements for even trying to do SNAP and WIC. Mm -hmm. So one of the, I mean, as far as the minimum stocking requirements, it's an interesting thing for, for the waste consideration too, right? So, I mean, like food waste is such a hot topic. Like everybody wants to know how much food is wasted on the farm side, on the um, distributor side, and on the retailer side, whereas like the majority of food waste happens on the consumer side. Uh, but within distribution, <laughs> but <laughs> to get back so to the easy point, to point the, uh, that <laughs> within distributors, everybody be very careful with how much you buy, only buy what you need. But um, on the distribution side, you know, for retailers, we're losing margin. That's partially why the margin is so low, because any given month, you're going to have best buy dates on the on the non-perishable foods, right? Mm -hmm. And then you're also going to have your produce that's just going to go bad faster. So of the food that I throw out, you know, it's, it, it takes a hit. So for WIC, which actually, this is this is a huge nod to Philip, who who seat I am sitting in right now. Um, Philip, who is on the, Philip, who is on the DC Food Policy Council, um, has been very involved in legislation in DC. So WIC is also um, has size requirements for retailers, and previously you had to be 10,000 square feet or more in order to be a WIC retailer in the United States. Uh, within D.C., we have passed legislation to allow smaller footprint stores to be eligible for the WIC program. And in doing this, they have adjusted the minimum stocking requirements. We've always had that. So oh, you guys have always had that. Different jurisdictions. We've different always had jurisdictions. It. Yeah. Okay. So in D.C., we now are the um, we're the first pilot store who's going to be working on the smaller WIC format. Um, and but we have a smaller stocking requirement. So for formula, I only need something like 24 units instead yes, of the students. standard of 100 and something for gallons of milk. I don't know what the standard requirement is, I only need like 15. Um, but these things help the small retailers to use that buying power to have some of these federal benefits um, in order to to help the, the margin a bit. So I, I kind of want to, we've spent a lot of time, I think, kind of talking about what's, what is and, and, you know, Baltimore is a city that has such enormous challenges. Mm -hmm. This is one of them. And, um, you know, the status quo, I guess you could say, are, are corner stores. It, it, are, is, there, is there thinking around what could be the next thing for us, or is there a better way to go about this than, I mean, I think we, the corner stores are, are the reality, but is there something, and again, I want to start with the right, <laughs> I got to start with the right what, question or the, to mm -hmm. get to the right answer. Mm -hmm. um, um, but I, I, I'm interested, very interested, uh, especially with this group that we have here, about thinking, th talking about what could be next. So there's no one thing. I mean, that's what we all have to understand. There is no magic bullet here. There's no one thing. It's all of it together. Um, and that is, I think going back to kind of your question I've been wanting to say from the very beginning of like how you frame the problem is also how you get to the solution. But we also have to remember there's never been people in government on food, right? Like I'm one of the first in the city, so we've never thought about food as a government, right? And so... Have it's our religious... Uh, organizations thought about but food? But I'm, ta I'm talking before. policy. No, I'm, I'm saying, but, mm -hmm. but also, I mean, this is, right. seems to be a new thing, too, in a way. Um, a the engagement. Mm -hmm. return. Yeah, okay. I'm being remembered back to, I yeah. mean, you, it's hard, you'd be hard-pressed to find a page in the Bible that don't have something to say about land or food <laughs> or water. Uh -huh. it's, mm -hmm. our, it's our social blindness to it that keeps us, you know, keeps us distance from it. So we're really just returning. Talk about origins. We're right. returning to uh, where our faith communities have been uh, so it's a remembering and reconnecting. Yeah. But I think that the answer is, and why I think one of my favorite parts of the maps um, is that we are mapping the full food environment. So it's not, I mean, yes, there's a liability layer, and I am continuing learning from Heber and many others on how to change the liability frame. But the problem with liability frame, or the good and bad, 
is that's the only way to change sometimes. I, if you can tell me how to mm. change policy and tell everyone it's good, and then mm. we can allocate a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of policy because everything is good, yeah. I would love to learn. Yeah. Um, but I haven't learned that yet. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be able to show systematic policy change, and it can't be in one area. It's not just about grocery stores. It's not just about corner stores. It's about school meals, breakfast, lunch and supper which are now free in our school district three meals a day and it's about summer and you know it's all these different components it's about urban agriculture and so what we have to be addressing is the food system and all the different pieces and we don't have the luxury to pick one um, because usually when you pick one it's kind of like a balloon right something else like pops up on the other side and so you have to be able to do them all and you need to be able to figure out like with that balloon like where do you need to poke a little hole and then where do you need to fill it in somewhere else and so we need to be looking at the whole system and also understanding our neighborhoods are really different right so there's policy things we have to do and then like but policies need to happen like programs are great and we need to see them citywide but many times policies stop so one of the examples i was using today a group of students came who actually met with heber as well and they said how do you help heber i said well heber goes all the way down to north carolina to get eggs from a black grower but in baltimore if we changed our ag practices and had black growers locally he wouldn't have to go there please get that done right and i'm working really hard okay. it'll take me a little with, bit oh, awesome. but that's kind of where a, you it comes in no, no. <laughs> i just punted um. <laughs> I want to ask you, mm -hmm. you're, you're wearing your O's cap, you must be an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> and, cause, and before we open it up, because I know we're going to have a lot of questions, um, what, what's, what's coming next? Where, where, where can we get some hope in this, this kind of tough landscape? Yeah, so I, I definitely agree with Holly. I, um, I did a whole lot around you know, public policy and the like, and cut my teeth really on um, legislative advocacy and, you know, and the like, and was disenchanted eventually. It was just like, you know what? This is a 45 minute drive to Annapolis mm -hmm. and I've wait all day long. Y'all been there? Yeah. To testify for two minutes and they're on Facebook while you're talking. And it's just like, you know what? This is not my lane. And so I'm grateful for those who are on that, that front line. It's important. Um, but I've really found my, my passion around lo local organizing and lo organizing these local communities and for us um, and when I say us I'm talking about the Black Church Food Security Network our piece of, of that work means mm -hmm. the we have a market called the Soil to Sanctuary Market and on first Sundays of the month uh, right after Sunday worship our multi-purpose room is filled with like six maybe seven vendors and these will be local urban farmers and growers and producers and it'll be um, eggs and whatever else I can get from Virginia, North Carolina. <laughs> and we create, it's like a mini farmer's market. You know, I read an article earlier this week about how a lot of farmer's markets are struggling because it's, you know, it's so saturated. I mean, you can you throw a rock, you'll hit 10 of them before it falls, right? So we really want to control for that by having a mini farmer's market and only having, like, if, if Denzel at uh, Strength to Love 2 Farm is providing scallions, that's the only person providing scallions. And then we have somebody else doing something else. And so we really control for it in such a way that we want every one of our farmers to leave out having sold out of everything they brought. And so we did a full year of piloting that last year. It went very well. We're moving to multiple churches this year. We want to keep on growing it so that we have these soil to sanctuary markets happening inside of our faith uh, institutions. And then, um, so that's a part of our systemic response. 
and when I hear and see not only farmers being happy, like Sister, Be Sister Blue from the Greener Garden, saying that every time she comes to our market, she sells out of everything. And she told the story just a couple nights ago about having to send her husband back to the farm to get more because, you know, after church, two things happen. People are excited, inspired, and they're hungry. And so they come out after the benediction ready to give money. Somebody take my money. I'm hungry. And so we're grateful to steer people right to these farmers and local producers. And right now, it's just Pleasant Hope Baptist Church. But my big dream and where we're going is all of synagogues, mosques, churches just begin to uh, re-envision and re-imagine what they can do with their space. Um, and then, too, now you got me thinking about how, that's why I was asking you questions, too, like how can churches be, and faith-based organizations more broadly concerned, you know, help you meet that weekly, you said $750? Mm -hmm. My mind went to my trusting meetings, like, okay, mm -hmm. well, what can we do to come alongside? Like, what can new what can new configurations look like in terms of how we how we get to these problems and get to get to solutions, lasting solutions, and like I said, I mean, I think we're living in a day and time where, like, everything has to be on the table. Like, maybe a church and a retail space has never worked together before, but guess what? <laughs> we're living in a time where we got to <laughs> try something else and figure that out, and yeah. so that's what we bring to the table. I'm going to reach out to you. We've got a corner store and a church connecting. <laughs> That'd be powerful. Let's, let's we'll do get it. We're getting a quick let's store. Do let's do it. Do you guys have a commercial kitchen? We have a we do have a we have, we have, a, we have a network of churches that have, have a network. That's that's a huge opportunity for value. And we got for fifteen the passenger buses and stuff like that. And so like moving people, like let's talk. We'll talk. We'll talk. But let's dream and let's be yeah. let's be courageous enough to fail on something that's worth failing for. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think that community ownership is huge. I mean, if you talk about the institutionalized racism that has affected this, um, racism is an issue of not just prejudice, but power. So people can be prejudiced and have biases against people, mm -hmm. but racism was caused because of power. So if we can give power back to the communities by giving them stores, by giving them churches and farms, um, this is a way that we can start to shift the, the power dynamic and give wealth back to the community. Mm -hmm. With that, we are going to take questions from this packed room. All right, our corner store. So much more. Um, so I wanted to say that, um, first of all, I thank all of you um, for doing this. This is wonderful. But I wanted to make a comment, um, as opposed to asking a question, is that something that's not raised a lot in these conversations is that informing people about nutritional education is key and critical because some people are raised from the cradle to the grave on junk food. I don't have a car. I take the bus every morning. I can't tell you the amount of kids that I watch in middle school and high school who have cookies and an orange soda or chips and something else and that is their breakfast. That is all that they have for access. Mm -hmm. um, in the conversation of making food more accessible, we also have to give people the knowledge of how food breaks down in your body, what it does to your body, what it does to your mind. Because trust me, if you look at what a Pepsi does inside of your body, you wouldn't want it. The same chemical that you use to wash tires, you don't want that in your body. But people eat it because it's all that they have access to. So I, I wish that nutritional education was folded into this because we're seeing in different public schools in Baltimore City that it works. Like mm. farmers are coming to schools and having after school programs with kids 
teaching them where their food actually comes from. Like this apple, it grows off a tree. It doesn't come in that, that green paper stuff wrapped in plastic. It really grows on something that's living. And when you put it in you, it's living as well. Thank you. Can I, can I just say something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you punted that, right? To, 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 to me, I guess. Um, I, I serve on the board of an organization called Taste Wise Kids, and we have lots of representatives here tonight from them. And I just, can I punt this to either Wendy or Reva to just give a one second, one minute? Wendy. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Okay. <laughs> Um, so I, I'm the executive director of Tasteways Kids, and we, in a nutshell, are doing exactly, you punted that clearly over here, I, you didn't even know it. Um, so we really just have one goal in mind, and we're working on finding fun ways and educational ways to teach kids where their food comes from with the ultimate goal of, give, of um, creating healthy habits for a lifetime. And so we are working, we are some of those people in the schools, we bring kids out to farms, we bring chefs into the schools, Spike has been one of our chefs in the past. Um, and so we are doing that, and I completely agree with you. That's a big part of this, of what needs to happen here. Um, so if anyone wants more information about what that looks like, there's a couple of us in the room, and we'd be happy to talk to you. Um, and we always are looking for people to get involved. But really, I think that is the other side of this, is that there's a lot about access, but a lot of the access is about education access mm -hmm. as well. I think that it's interesting that, that you bring that up because uh, Oasis Community Partners, which is the, the parent nonprofit of Good Food Markets, we do have an interesting social enterprise model as far as our financials go, um, but Oasis Community Partners is focused on um, nutrition and education. And so uh, there are a lot of other organizations within D.C. who are doing a, a phenomenal job at that. I used to be an educator, um, a garden educator in one of the charter schools. And what is really interesting about working with the children is that if you bring them out into a school garden and you show them like this is how things grow they feel this ownership for these this food that they grew and they want to bring that home to their families and feed them with that and one of the fun things that we say in, in garden class is that you know you always have to try it right you can't say that, like ew I don't want to eat that you because you can't yuck my yum I think it's tasty you can't say that it's yucky right um, and so once they hear that oh don't yuck my yum like yeah some of the things that I find tasty other people can't eat what's actually interesting is that we've had great success with kids learning that and less success with the adults, okay? So um, for us, we've been trying to figure out ways where we could do sort of um, shopping experiences with people who might have um, health outcomes that, that their doctors have prescribed. And if there's a way for us to shop with them within our store and, f and you know, what, what are you used to eating? What is relevant to you? We're not going to tell you, oh, like you enjoy eating one kind of food and now all you can eat are salads, right? If you're not going to eat that, it's not going to be a good diet for you. Um, but there, there's a lot involved with education that just because we show up and we sell this food doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to buy it. Yeah. I'm a nurse midwife in downtown Baltimore, and I used to work at a birth center for the underserved in D.C. And in D.C., we did group prenatal care, and we had a garden out front, and the families worked at the garden, and then people came by whenever and took whatever food in yeah. group prenatal care. We served the food that we grew, and it was a good model. But what I've learned from a number of my patients, I had my group prenatal care, now we provide food for in the morning and the afternoon, and I try to bring it. I am Polish and Italian, <laughs> and I bring, the, I bring things and cook in a way that speaks to me. 
and the heritage of my patients, if I know when I'm sad or upset, the things I want to eat are pasta because that's my people. Um, and in, if you trace the history of food, if you were denied fresh foods and you were given the worst part of the meat, the worst in the recipes that you have grown up with that identify home to you are things that are not healthy. But deny, I, if you told me to not eat the thing that my great grandmother made me, or otherwise I might die, I'll die. <laughs> um, so I was wondering if there, if anybody has thought about working on recipes that speak to the community that would be, um, that kind of have a, t a healthier twist, but also <laughs> are in line with, well, I'll say my patient heritage so that it's something that they identify with and feels like home. Yeah. Because I don't think it's just chips and cookies. I sure. think it is what uh, they're cooking with what they've been given for years or what and not cooking with what they've been denied for years. Yeah. So we're actually, we, we are working on a, a cooking class curriculum. So um, a lot of what we're seeing happening in the food retail space is that they're um, in D.C. in particular, uh, the food away from home dollars is now greater than the food at home dollars. Um, so people are eating out a lot. And that's that's across the board because you have people who um, are, are short on time. And so they're picking up grab and go meals for their family because they still have to feed them at home. So one of the things that we're doing is we're doing a lot of in-house prepared food at the Ward 8 South Capitol store. We will have um, a full kitchen and cafe component with um, with made to order meals. And so right now, one of the things that we've done sort of on and off in the last four years is that we go to the Woodridge Public Library and we, we bring a, you know, a gas burner and we, and we make a meal. So the most recent thing that we did was a turkey pasta skillet. So it's basically hamburger helper, but it's a little bit more healthy because it's ground turkey, right? And it's lean ground turkey. Well, deciding what the recipes are? I guess that's what, yeah, that's what I struggle with. Sure. I can decide the recipes. Definitely. They don't speak to my patients always. Yeah. Well, there actually are ways to cook. You know, like soul food, right? Yeah. So my, my my grandmother used my grandmother used to make like sauerkraut and put pigtails in them, mm -hmm. and to this day they're just so gross to me because mm -hmm. it's nothing but a big slab of grease with some skin on it and a bone. So, but there are cheats. You know, there are ways to put olive oil in things and use spices, but people have to be educated on those mm -hmm. things, and they taste really good. I think that Capital Area Food Bank and DC Central Kitchen are both doing a lot of cooking curriculums with people. They're going out into the community. And I think it's not just handing somebody a recipe card and saying like, no, we're sure you're gonna like this, right? It's having these events where you get to bring people around the table and you're not just showing them how to make it and being like, yeah, I know maybe you're skeptical, but this is also something to do and we're feeding you at the end of this, right? And so people get to try it, they get to take it home and then they get the recipe card, right? So they see that it is, this is somebody that would make it for them, someone in their family, right? And then they get to be a part of that experience, and then they also get to take home the recipe card. And at Good Food Markets, we're trying to put that stuff on sale so that people can come and buy it if they want to. I'll say uh, that at, we've hosted a bunch of food and faith sessions at our church, and um, where we've done cooking classes or the programs and the like. And, um, you know, what you said really resonates with me because food goes so deep. Mm -hmm. You can do, you can put it up here all you want to, 
but you're so right. It goes deeper than just give me the information. Yeah. So when we do it together at our congregation, we host a food and faith, whatever, six week, seven week series. Uh, we did one, it was the, um, what was the African Always Heritage um, uh, Food uh, Program. And it was, it was cool, it was good. And it needed to be modified, right? So, so I, uh, you know, my ancestral tongue is very picky. And what my members know is if I think something is nasty, I'm going to say, I don't like that. I don't, I don't care what the paper says. I don't like it. And I think my very, you know, my candid way uh, of just really being honest about the food um, gives license and room for those who I share life with at my church to say the same thing. Pastor, I don't know about that. I don't like that. We're not doing that. So we'll take we'll take stuff and we'll modify it and say we need to improve upon this. God bless. We say bless their hearts for trying. That was nice. <laughs> bless their hearts. But, oh, they do. Uh, so so yeah, we we got to modify it. But I also will say this is that um, you know we don't we're not fortunate enough at Pleasant Hope to have a spike. But we have uh, a wonderful woman named Minnie Little, and she has been the kitchen director at Pleasant Hope for more than thirty years. She has fed 100-plus families at that congregation, you know, for a very long time. And when I shared with my congregation and shared with Sister Minnie that I said, you know, high blood pressure runs in my family. And I'm getting about that age where i got to really pay attention to that. And I said, Sister Minnie, so when we do church meals, uh, do me a favor. I can't, I'm not eating chicken anymore, and I'm not doing turkey anymore. I'm not doing, because these are the things that help me manage my blood pressure. Okay, Pastor, all right, I got you. So church meals still happen, but Pastor gets a special plate. I got my side plate where I got my fish or something else, right? What has happened since I've shared my concern about my health before my congregation is that others have said, well, what's Pastor eating? Mm -hmm. I, I want to eat that. And so Sister Minnie has had to expand the Pastor menu <laughs> to other members of the church because they also have concerns about their health and they trust the hands in the kitchen to be able to put a meal on that plate that is sensitive to the health concerns but also honors the particulars of our palate and what we need in a, in a cultural, culturally appropriate uh, way as well. And so those are some steps that we've taken. It's a bit a communal, you know, we take a journey together. We don't leave people off to only figure it out. We have community meals, we take steps, we learn, we grow. And we give, again, we give room and license for people to say, that's nasty. And, you know, it, I mean, for real, because if, if healthy food means something that my people have, or my ancestral heritage does not line up with, you know, that's a problem. We, I think we need to broaden what healthy food is. We got to, mm -hmm. who, who set the standards? Right. What guidelines set the standards for every human being in the country? Yeah. Without sensitivity to the ancestral and the lineage and the, and all of that, like I think we got some work to do in that arena Columbia. to really broaden out what it means to have a healthy, full uh, diet. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Angela Taylor. I'm a nutritionist, but I'm also a volunteer at the former First Christian Church on Roland Avenue. It's recently rebranded to be Corner Community Center of Roland Park. And I am trying to, I'm in the process of organizing a farmer's market which is slated, God willing, to begin in June of this year. And I just wanted to ask for advice on how to have a successful farmer's market. Oh, no. Do you want the real answer? Yeah. <laughs> Don't have one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, 
So, I mean, I, sorry, I gave you, the, but the real answer is, so Baltimore, just to be clear, there is a national issue with farmer's market closing. Baltimore is, not, we've had a little bit of hiccups, but nothing like the rest, because we have been very blunt and telling people, and I have heard a lot of not nice words back to me and also the Maryland Farmers Market Association around don't do it. Um, and here is the reason why I'm saying it, and then I can also give you an alternative to it, right? Um, and so in order to have a farmer's market that's successful, what do you need? Farmers. All right. Are farmers going to make money in a farmer's market where there's maybe 50 people? No. No. Absolutely. So the limiting factor of why farmers, so number one is farmers. Number two, we once again, we shop out more, but also... We have all the um, online. You know, you mm -hmm. have your blue aprons, you have all this. Mm -hmm. The market share for farmer's market has gone down. Yeah. Um, so I think that we have to kind of address that elephant yeah. in the room that even though we might have these ideas of a farmer's market, it's that you want to get food. Mm -hmm. And so I think it has to be thinking a little bit more about if maybe there's farmers like in Baltimore though, right? Like having a farmer's, I'm not saying a farmer's market, but like what Heber is saying here is Heber has farmers going directly to his church. Right? And yeah. it's not a farmer's market, but it's directly related to direct sales at that moment where people are. And I think mm -hmm. that's what we need to be looking at is where are the people sitting at that moment and let's get food there. And mm -hmm. if that's at a certain location and time, then you look at that food ordering for that exact moment, maybe pre-ordering from farms so they know exactly how much they're going to get and have it dropped off at that time. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of communal CSA models yeah. that have worked well in D.C. Mm -hmm. with the contract. Mm -hmm. Yeah, our, our soil to sanctuary market, you, know, you touch on, you know, um, we have met farmers who are members of our church, but also uh, the backbone of our membership is 60 and over. And so you talk about online, my 60 and over, I call them my AARP club. My AARP club, they want to touch it, they want to shake their hand, they want to know who, how's your mama, who's your mama, and I, you know, how the children doing, and all of that. Deeply relational, deeply re relational. And so food is just the stage that deepens our connection. I'll say it that way. And so um, that's why, you know, we've seen success in our very, very small, deeply connected uh, way with our soil sanctuary markets. my comment no one wants to speak up yeah <laughs> <laughs> hello um, I'm Sharon Stowers um, I work in Harford County I'm a nutritional anthropologist and a registered mm, dietitian wow. but um, I really want to talk about the historical context of food in that the origins of the USDA actually in the late 1800s was all about teaching immigrants to eat cheaper instead of raising the minimum wage hmm. So right there, from the development of the nutrition department at the USDA, it was um, all about you know how can we concentrate on the individual instead of the structural problem of not a, a good minimum wage for people. In relationship to race, I love this soil to sanctuary. In Hartford County, we don't well in the last census, agricultural census, we had one African American farmer up there. And my, our farmers say, well, we don't have African-American people doing farming. And I'm like, yes, we did. We had a slave history in this county. And everybody was farming for somebody else. And um, I know that our black members of our community are a little anxious about going to farm stands sometimes if they don't feel welcome. 
So um, these are just really severe structural problems um, that really have to be looked like looked at at this discussion of race and economics, and um, and not get to what I call nutrithink and nutrispeak, where we're focused more on the nutrition and not on the bigger issues, which are harder to solve. Um, so. We can solve one issue right now. We can have something good to eat because I think we're close to. Uh, how does that sound? It smells good. All right. It smells good. Um, this has been an incredible conversation. I want to thank the folks here at this table for not only for being here and talking about this, but for the work that you guys are doing because that's amazing. But I want to thank you all, whether you're listening here in the room or online, uh, for being a part of this really, really important conversation. I think at the very least we understand now that there is so much work to be done. A lot of these problems, I understand from this conversation and conversations I'm having outside of this room, are so deeply entrenched. Uh, but I'm glad we have great people like you folks working on this, and I'm going to keep working on it. Uh, so we're going to do a great, great supper here for, for those of you that are in the room. Um, Lauren and I have cooked up a couple chilies. One is uh, with smoked turkey and uh, white beans, and the other is vegan, and it, it has um, kind of the last... Uh, last blast of sweet potatoes and uh, some tomatoes. Lauren, if you don't know her, is our, our kind of, uh, we call her a chief preservationist, but she does all of our canning. And a former and, panelist. Yes, and she's been, she's been here, and so um, also an amazing chef in her own right, so we've got a few salads, and uh, uh, I made some bread pudding for dessert. Mm. Um, so, uh, so thank you. Uh, we'll just ask you to kind of vacate the room so we can turn it over and, and turn it back into the dining room that it is on, on its day job, and... Uh, Thanks for being at Origins. Thanks. Thanks again for joining us tonight for our conversation at Artifact Coffee. With special thanks to Dana Slater for producing the program, Hannah Reagan for her masterful coordination, and particular thanks to Donnie Carlo for recording this evening's conversation. We're grateful to be partnering with Heritage Radio in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you to them for creating a home for the Origin Speaker Series. 